Welcome to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. This is your forum for exploring and discussing challenges that are faced by public and nonprofit leaders. And now, Leadership Matters. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in to Leadership Matters. Informing leaders, inspiring solutions. I'm Cheryl White, and I'm delighted today to be bringing you a conversation on Black Voices in Leadership. Excited to have our president and CEO from the Neighborhood House Association with us today, Mr. Rudolph Johnson III. Thank you so much, Rudy, for creating time in your schedule to do this today. Thank you for having me. Yes, my pleasure always. And then also excited to have Karen Norman with us, who's also going to be joining us in this conversation. Karen comes to us from New York. She is the Chief Program Officer of Lutheran Social Services in New York again. So thank you so much, Karen, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to just jump right into this conversation and um, start off. Maybe we can start with you, Rudy, and just ask you just to share a little bit about yourself and, and your current leadership role so the audience kind of has an idea as to um, the perspective you bring. Thank you so much, Dr. White. So, um, you know, I'm in my 14th year as so president and CEO of the Neighborhood House Association here in San Diego. Uh, we are an organization that has about 850 FTEs. We're a budget of about $111 million a year in terms of our operating uh, revenue that comes in. Um, I come by way of the San Diego Convention Center. I ran the Convention Center as a general manager. I built the first expansion of the Convention Center. And um, at my roots, I'm an engineer. I'm a, a trained civil engineer with a master's in public administration. So. It's good to be here and have this conversation. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks again. And Karen, how about a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a clinical social worker. I'm the chief program officer for Lutheran Social Services of New York. Uh, We are a $65 million organization, and we have employees of about 630 to 640 employees, and we serve about 7,500 people annually through a variety of services. So we run the continuum of early childhood education, straight through single room occupancy housing. We have food programs, we have foster care, preventive services, and a myriad of other services in between. And I'm excited to be with you today. And I bring to you about, so I'm saying it out loud, about 30 years in the social service industry. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, it is always a pleasure to have a conversation with you, Karen. I know we've had many. So this is um, a treat uh, to hear you and Rudy have this conversation together. I'm going to start by asking both of you to reflect and then either of when you can start with regards to when did you first realize that there were people in America referenced as black and that you were one of them? (laughs) Who'd like to jump in and start us off? So I'm going to take ladies first, pleasure. (laughs) I I thought about that question. I have to be honest. There's never been a time when I did not know that I was black and that there were black people um, or people called black in this country. When I think about my earliest memories, they're of church, they're of my community, they're of the school that I attended. And by and large, the people in my community look like me and my family. And um, always through media, we are reminded that we are people of color and, you know, always with the problems, but also with 
a lot of pride and enjoyment I come and find from being a black person. Mm -hmm. So having that realization all of your life, yeah. it's hard to say what was that experience like, but what was the experience of having that realization from media and everything else like for you? I think it was a mixed bag. So for a lot of reasons, um, it was thrilling because what I saw in my experience for the most part in church and in community and at school was a lot of love. I went to a community school in the South Bronx and it was the Garrity Morgan. So the first thing they tried to do was teach us exactly who he was. And because the school was predominantly run by people of color, which I understand now is revolutionary. At the time, I thought it was just the way it was. We learned a lot about um, inventors. And so that was significant to increasing my sense of pride. I also know that I grew up in the South Bronx. Um, I'm a 70s baby. And uh, so I, my earliest memories are things like um, Jimmy Carter coming to the South Bronx. And then later on, maybe a couple of years later, Reagan coming. And I think those were the times when it really became poignant for me that our poverty was something that people studied and something that left me feeling a little bit embarrassed because I don't think I really realized because my neighborhood was rich with community and with those kinds of feelings of love and black power, I didn't realize that we were Fort Apache, the Bronx with all of the, um, the transgressions and the kind of stereotypes that went along with it that I quickly learned also existed. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, thanks Karen. Really, how about for yourself? When was the first time you realized that there were people in America referenced as black and that you were indeed one of them? Well, coming out of the womb, you know, my parents um, uh, were married and have their, their first couple of children uh, in the early and mid 60s. I'm a 60s baby. I was born in 65. So the height of the civil rights movement, my parents were engaged. Um, the, the neighborhood I grew up in, Southeast San Diego, 31st and Ocean View. If you're from San Diego, you know exactly where, what I'm talking about. Emerald Hills, no. There's a, <laughs> hey, there's a, as I tell everyone, there's a 31st and Ocean View in every major city in America. Let's yes. be clear about that. So, and, and it, and it, you know, and you look at the lack of resources around you in hindsight as a grown man, you know, living the, the lifestyle that we live now, there were no neighborhood parks. There were no grocery stores. Um, there were no, you know, areas where you could uh, go and sit down and have uh, quiet enjoyment. Right. And so, you know, it, there were a lot of vacant lots. There were a lot of sand lots. There were there were dilapidated buildings where I grew up. So it didn't, it didn't take a rocket scientist to understand that you had an inferior environment at that time. And so um, I knew, like I said, coming out the womb that we, we were living in, di in a different environment than most of America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what was that realization like for you? What was the experience like for you? You know, at the time, I didn't know anything else. So I thought this was, you know, a normality. You know, this was, this was what everyone else uh, experienced. And it, it toughened me up. I think I come from a time period where African-American men and women grew up harder in the streets. And their survival and life skills became 
sharper. And so that propelled me into um, my quest for education because education is the greatest neutralizer of poverty. I say that to everyone who will listen. And I was fortunate enough to go to an HBCU. And if you know anything about HBCUs, there's another dose of reality and you learn how to make do with the resources that you have around you and you become a survivor. Mm -hmm. So I grew up hard. I became a survivor. I got the book, you know, uh, skills and I just pieced that all together coupled with my professional development. And in hindsight, that was probably one of the best mixtures I could have ever hoped for in terms of coming of age. Mm-hmm. And when you say HBCU, for those who may not know what that is, what okay, is yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, historically black colleges and universities, for those of you don't, that don't know that acronym. Mm-hmm. And which of those did you attend? Texas Southern University, Third Ward, Houston. Yes, and we love them because Grambling like they beat y'all. No, and <laughs> take you to the swag, but no, good thing. Touche, touche, wonderful, and and I definitely um, also have great appreciation for the educational process and experience of historically black colleges as a Grambling State University graduate. So, um, Karen, uh, thank you, Rudy, to bring you back into this conversation and just reflect a little bit on that journey growing up. You know, growing up, what was the most painful experience that you recall um, related to being Black in America? So I think about two things that really stand out for me. Um, Primarily, much like Rudy, um, I remember being a child of the 70s, late 60s, and seeing roots and really understanding the pain that exists in our history here in the United States. And I I thought it was a big, sophisticated book, and I demanded my parents buy it for me. I had learned how to read fairly recently, but I struggled through it and then watched it on television. And it was painful to see the violence that my people experienced. I think that coupled with a personal experience of my parents, my father driving my sister and I to a white neighborhood because we had the luxury and the benefit of having a car even though we were living in a very poor community. And we would go to white neighborhoods to buy groceries. We would go to the delis because we recognized a lot of the food available in our communities seemed to be inferior in a lot of ways. Um, So for variety and for better meats, we would go to Little Italy and places like that. And I remember my dad leaving my sister and I in the car and going into the deli. And we were surrounded by white teenage boys. And they had begun to call us the N-word and say things and point at the car and get really close to the window. And I was mixed both with fear, but also with a lot of anger and wanting to respond back. But I remember this because I couldn't have been more than 10 years old. What struck me right then and there was to be careful not to engage with them and hope, praying that they would move away before my father came back because I didn't want my father to get in trouble. And I didn't want my father to be hurt because I know he would fiercely protect my sister and I. And we ran the risk of losing our father just in that moment of childhood blackness and just sitting in a car in a neighborhood where people don't want you. And so I think that that is the experience of many black people in the United States. Being in a juxtaposition of being 
an American wanting the same things that everyone else wants, safe neighborhoods and those kinds of things, but also always having that fear that you could be hurt for taking up any amount of space just for being black. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, those things really stood out for me throughout childhood. Wonderful. Karen, thank you so much for sharing that. We need to take a commercial break, but when we come back, Rudy, I'd love to hear um, your experience before we transition to another space in our conversation. So please stay with us. We'll be right back with more on Leadership Matters, Informing Leaders, Inspiring Solutions. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Today, expertise equals credibility. When you know what to do and how to do it, people follow because they acknowledge that you know more. However, stepping up in your career eventually pushes you out of your comfort zone of expertise. How you lead at those moments requires new skills. We're here to show you how to survive and thrive. Join me, Wanda Wallace, on Out of the Comfort Zone at Voice America Business Channel. You can find more information at Leadership Forum INC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. And we're back with more on Leadership Matters, bringing you greetings from the Neighborhood House Association in San Diego, California, and delighted that today we have our president and CEO of the Neighborhood House Association with us today, Mr. Rudolph A. Johnson III. Again, thank you so much for joining us today, Rudy. Thank you. Yes, and also with us today, we have Karen Norman, Chief Program Officer of Lutheran Social Services of New York. And Karen, thank you also for being with us. It's my pleasure. And Karen, I'll say that you're K-E-R-R-O-N as opposed to Karen. (laughs) Karen have gotten a really bad rep, so I'm like, I'm I'm black Karen. (laughs) With an E, yes. (laughs) Yes, definitely. So before we went to break, um, Karen, you shared your experience uh, with regards to your most painful experience related to being Black in America growing up, and I appreciate um, your sharing that with us. And Rudy, wanted to have you also share your experience. 
Well, you know, that's a very interesting question because I don't think when you're growing up in poverty, you understand that you're in poverty. <laughs> I don't think you fully realize it until you're able to experience a different side of life and you say to yourself, I grew up in poverty, you know, and this is what it looked like. Um, at that time, we thought this was a safe haven, a safe place for us. And, you know, it's where I learned how to be, you know, um, creative. It's where I learned how to, um, you know, put on my, my big boy, big girl pants and, and go outside and conquer the world. It's where I learned how to make something out of nothing. And it's also where I learned how to expect disappointment. And when, you know, when something better happened, you know, that, that, was, a, that was a bonus. But I, I wake up every morning expecting to put out a fire, <laughs> even to this day in my life. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about being a CEO in a minute, but um, it was funny. I was talking to one of my board members two or three years ago, and you did the session for us, Dr. White. And everyone went around the room. They said, you know, I'm optimistic. I, I think things are going to be positive and, and, and there's going to be sunshine and rainbows. And, and when something bad happens, that's a one-off. And I said, well, I wake up the opposite. I wake up expecting something that's going to go wrong. And when it ends up being positive, that's neutral for me. Mm. So that's kind of how I grew up. It's kind of how I experience being black and it's just stuck with me throughout my life and career and I don't get too down during the down times and I don't get too high during the high times I stay right in the middle so um, in brief I guess you can sum it up by saying I don't think we understood we were living in poverty so we couldn't feel fully appreciate or realize what we were going through at the time Mm -hmm. That's real interesting. And, you know, Rudy, we often will talk to um, leaders sometime about right-sizing their expectations. And it sounds like that's just been a condition of life for your journey. So that's kind of interesting to, to hear. And we say that because we say disappointment comes from expectations not being met. So if you don't allow yourself to have, you know, lofty expectations or higher expectations, then you avoid you escape disappointment. It's, it's mm -hmm. one way in which we're able to um, stay self-regulated by not having to deal with the emotional um, drain of disappointment. It sounds like you didn't allow yourself to have disappointment because you just well, it was didn't allow yourself to have expectations that were. It was conditioned. You know, it was conditioned. You know, mm -hmm. I was thinking about the ice cream truck. You know, everyone, I don't know if you all too young. Oh, I remember. Mm -hmm. Okay, you guys remember the ice cream truck you used mm -hmm. to run through it. When you heard the sound, the first thing you're trying to do is scramble for your money. Mm -hmm. And I remember we only had enough to buy one ice cream and split it. It was a twin. It was oh, yeah. twin popsicles. <laughs> right. And so I don't, again, I don't know how old you guys are, but we used to, mm -hmm. they used to come in the red, the blue, the green. And so we run, scrape that little dime or whatever it was, split that puppy. That was our expectations that you got one half of that. Yes. As an adult, mm -hmm. I can stop the truck and maybe buy the truck now. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. And yeah. that's a blessing. I think about it in mm -hmm. terms of the fact that 
our, my parents cushioned us a lot around poverty. So I don't think I totally knew we were poor because we ate richly and we maintained a certain look to our home. There was a pride in keeping the house clean and keeping the plastic on the sofa because you're not going to get one for a really long time, but the one you had, you were going to preserve. And I think that those things that our parents did to really kind of shelter us from that. And so what I always, what I think I knew, but didn't understand completely, if I follow you a little bit, Rudy, we had the benefit of having my father in the house. So I knew I had a sense of privilege in that because there were a lot of children on my street in the South Bronx that didn't have their father in the home. So that was a source of pride for us that we had our dad. And what was even more beautiful is before all the money was done, there was at least one time a month that I knew he was going to come outside and buy ice cream and buy it for not just me and my sisters, but for maybe a couple of the other kids, whoever was around at that moment. And that filled me with enormous pride. Mm -hmm. I think the things that made me really do understand the poverty that we were in were like watching the Brady Bunch or those other shows with these idealistic white settings knowing that our community did not look like that. But at the same time, some of the components that they had in their home, we weren't missing. So mother and father in the home filled me with a great sense of richness. But I do think that I had a keen awareness, maybe because my father was uh, functionally illiterate and I ended up doing a lot of the writing and looking at the bills. I had a strong sense, even as a young child, of what we had, what came in and what went out. So I feel like I was like a baby CFO because I helped to put those bills together. So I had that realization. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that, Karen. Karen, when you think about your most joyful experience uh, related to being Black in America, uh, as you were like in that journey of growing up, and we're going to fast forward to, to now in a moment, but uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts with regards to the most joyful experience? So my thoughts are, and I just heard this phrase recently, but I like it the blackity black blackness of it all, right? So my mom was a Jamaican immigrant to this country. So we had that. So when I was growing up, our my mother's side of the family was constantly immigrating to the United States. So there was always a sense of excitement about helping the new family members come and adjust. And my father was from the South. So there was always these opportunities to go down South for family reunion, right? So, and of course, as a traditional Christian black family, there was church. So there was such a profound beauty in the experience of the blackity black blackness of it all. That means that there's a lot of passion, there's good food, there's strong talk, it's political, it's spiritual, and it's everything that nourishes and enriches us today. I remember thinking that when I watched um, the funeral the other day, for George Floyd, just the richness of that funeral, right? And so many people watched it, but I really think that black America understood it because that was a blackity black funeral. And I, I was thrilled, I cried, I, I was mournful, and then I was able to rejoice all at the same time. And that's what I think sustains most of us in the midst of it all. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Rudy, how about for yourself, when you reflect on your most joyful experience related to growing up Black in America, what might that be? I just take pride in, you know, kind of who we are collectively as a, as a people, you know, just how strong 
we are resilient. You know, I come from a long line of strong, resilient, um, you know, um, individuals who would not take no for an answer, would not let poverty um, stop them. Um, it didn't matter where, you know, people say it doesn't matter where you start in life. It, it's all about where you end up. I'm going to tweak that a little bit. It's not about where you end up. It's about the journey and learning from the journey. And every generation kind of learns from the previous generation's journey. You know, if you don't want to eat one half of a popsicle, then you need to educate yourself, go to work so you can buy the whole <laughs> truck. You know, and, and I'm going to keep it real with you. I mean, um, and so that's what, you know, makes me proud to this day is the fact that we're strong, mm -hmm. we're yeah. brilliant, we're right. beautiful, you know? And um, if given the opportunity, we're gonna soar like an eagle. And, mm -hmm. you know, we'll talk about opportunities and all that. I definitely wanna come back to that CEO thing because opportunity mm -hmm. and being strong and all that stuff, you know, that 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 is a skill set. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just give you a teaser. Yeah, actually, let's just go there. Okay, Let's just go to the mindset of an African-American CEO. Now, we're going to probably come up against a break, but we're going to start it here. We're going to pick it back well, up. I don't want to. I'm going to tease you. I'm going to tease you and then let's break because I need to really sit down and pour some coffee. But, okay. <laughs> but here's the teaser. Here's the teaser. We teach, train, and develop our children to become employees. Rarely do we teach them to become leaders and end up in the C-suite? And I, I want to change that trajectory uh, of how we're training our next generation leaders. So I'll leave you with that teaser, and then we'll come back on the other side of the break and talk about that. Okay. All right. That sounds good. So we will be back with more on Leadership Matters, Informing Leaders, inspiring solutions. Loving to hear the tease on the next side of the uh, commercial, Rudy. <laughs> Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. The pace of change in the world is increasing exponentially and shows no signs of slowing down. Leadership is evolving and requires more and more innovative leaders to keep up. 
Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf, features interviews with global business leaders, thought leaders, and academics in a wide range of industries. Proven concepts and tools may be applied to build your organization and deliver sustainable success. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Shube, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovations.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. And we're back with more on Leadership Matters. And join the conversation with Karen Norman, Chief Program Officer of Lutheran Social Services of New York, as well as the President and CEO of Neighborhood House Association, uh, Mr. Rudolph A. Johnson. We're going to just throw it right back over to you to continue um, that conversation as relates to the mindset of an African-American CEO in developing and really where you teased us to start back. Thank you, Doc. I appreciate it. And um, let me just go right into an initiative that we launched about three years ago here at the Neighborhood House Association, three or four years ago now, and that is quarterly recruiting from HBCUs. And the reason why we did it was because obviously I'm a product of an HBCU, but because of all the reasons that I talked about in terms of how we're developing bench strength and next generation leadership. And we needed to get to those sources that were churning them out at a high rate. Um, We're not going to find them at San Diego State, UCSD, because their numbers are low. And so, you know, you don't have a competitive edge against the Qualcomm's and some of these other companies that are going to cream the crop in terms of the very few population of African-Americans you have in those engineering programs, et cetera. So we've been doing that four times a year. And what I'm finding out is that from a technical development perspective, we're solid in our training at the HBCUs. But one thing we don't understand is that when a president and CEO steps on your campus, he or she has the authority to make an instant hire. They're not coming. They don't have to check with nobody. They don't have to go back. They don't have to think or confer with anyone. They can hire you on the spot. And the only way to achieve that status is to really go beyond your technical training and start to learn things like budget management skills, contract negotiation and admin skills, political acumen, community engagement, fundraising. I said earlier in the show, I'm a trained engineer and I spent a lot of years in the engineering world at the city of San Diego, but it didn't halfway get me ready for the journey I'm on now as president and CEO. So I've made a vow that now as I'm going back, I'm also mixing my visits with town halls for these students where we're really digging deep and talking about 
skill sets that you need to get into the C-suite so you can come back on these campuses and make decisions without having to go back and check with individuals. That's a different phenomenon. The only thing that I have to clear through anyone is probably some kind of major policy decision that my board of directors would probably have to be involved in, and that's once every 30 days. The other 29, I'm the end of the line in terms of decision making. There comes a lot of pressure, responsibility, a lot of anxiety with that, and we're just not trained to do that as African Americans, and we're going to change that. Mm-hmm. We're going to change that trajectory. Wonderful. I, I appreciate your sharing that, and I appreciate your commitment to doing that and the difference that that will make in the lives of the children. And then just in the, uh, it's already making a difference with regards to the culture of Neighborhood House Association, but I think it ripples and makes a difference in the culture and society in general. So I appreciate that commitment. Karen, when we uh, think about um, yourself and kind of fast forwarding, to your own journey in leadership and the experiences that have helped to propel you to success in life and as a leader, what are some thoughts that you might share? Right, so I was thinking about what Rudy said. I'm not 100%, I agree with all of it, but I definitely respect your perspective. When I think about the things that we learn as African-Americans and we teach, I don't know that we only train employees. I think that we're constantly training ourselves and our children to be leaders. Now, not every leader is going to be defined by having a CEO title. However, when I think about positions that Black folk will hold in their churches or in their communities, and the type of work that it takes to learn how to navigate conversations, navigate social injustice in order to succeed, those are leadership skills. Just that simple idea of how do I maneuver or position myself in this situation How do I allow myself to take up space regardless of what I'm facing? When we think about the first little girls who integrated schools, now, whether they went on to become CEOs or not, that that was leadership right there, right? Just the courage that it takes to do those types of things I think are important. I think we can't um, underestimate at all the level of skill that it takes to survive blackness every single day. So it won't always be defined in being a CEO. I think CEO is a lofty title and it's great when people get that. But at the same time, there's leadership for the bus driver who's got to navigate thousands of passengers on a daily basis and get them to and fro safely and keep himself or herself safe as well. So I think it's just a matter of how you want to look at leadership. But when I think about what has been my journey and what has opened up opportunities for me, I think about like my very earliest memories of seeing a black woman as the principal of my school, seeing my mother head a ministry at my church, or even being the, the usher who showing me that the way that she helped to lead our household was informative for me. I think about my dad who I started off my life really, really shy. And he let me know and he would affectionately call me Miss Cameron. There is no time for us to read your mind. You're going to have to open your mouth. And I think that just that alone gave me permission to use my voice in this world. And I've never stopped. When I began to work, I think initially when I was in college and thinking about work, it was around the time that the Cosby show was in swing. And I don't think of five women my age who didn't want to be Claire Huxtable 
and what that mm -hmm. would look like. And I took a job with the city of New York right out of college just to save enough money to go ahead to law school. And initially I thought that I would be vice president of the United States or that I would be some leader because I'd always been told that I was bossy, that I was sassy, but I wore those things like a badge of honor. And I think what happens, unfortunately, to some little black girls, they get drowned out about that. I think women in general, but definitely black girls, maybe it's not as appreciated outside of our community, but I didn't let that interfere with the idea that I had a voice and I needed to be heard. When I started working for the city of New York, what really kept me working as a social worker was going into communities much like the one that I grew up in, but with a different lens because I wasn't narrowed and defined by my zip code. My parents had never allowed that. I wasn't defined by their level of education. I would be defined by my own. And there was never a doubt that I was going to go to college. I went to public university and I was able to go to Ivy League graduate school. But when I started working in community and making home visits and it was during the crack epidemic and I was seeing all of the atrocities that I had been shielded from, I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to help my people. And why was it important to me? Because a lot of the children that I was working with had never gotten off their block. They never left their street. They never left the Bronx. And so here I was, a representative looking just like them, letting them know that it's okay when you leave the block. It's okay to go away to school and you're going to be fine and you could be whatever you want. And I also think that when I started working for the city, I looked around and maybe it's, it's the ambition or the kind of um, competitive nature that I have. But I looked around at who were the supervisors. And I said to myself, if they can do it, I must can do that. But I also had a father who stressed that common sense would take you a lot further than book sense because he had relied on his wit and his common sense because he didn't have a, you know, a fine education like he was able to give me. So I felt like from a very early age, I had permission to leave. And what I wasn't given, I went on to go ahead and take. And so no matter what I have encountered around trying to squash my voice or silence me, I have permission, I feel, and I have authority. Having looked at my Bible, having studied the word, looking at judges like Deborah, having looked at great women like Candace, having had a mother like Barbara Norman, I knew I could do whatever the hell I wanted to and was going to. Mm -hmm. And I think that black leadership becomes defined a lot of the times by our communities, by our families, and by our sense of self, which when it's done right, is done very well. Mm -hmm. And when it's not done right, then we suffer from internalized racial inferiority. And that's something that as black leaders, we have a responsibility to challenge and to help our staff, to help our mentees to really draw out of and away from. And I think things like the People's um, Work, the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond and Undoing, Rac Undoing Racism Workshop and Community Organizing, things like that anti-racist work that I have done have helped me to really understand. And in those areas where I feel like we're not, you hear about us pulling each other down, that's not everybody. And I don't allow us to paint ourselves with that brush. Mm -hmm. If there is that pocket of negativity, it's my responsibility to help pull people out of that. And that's what I do. And I think that that's what defines me as a leader. Wonderful. I appreciate that. I appreciate both of your um, voices on that. Rudy, I'm aware that you're going to have to um, leave us. So I want to um, give you some space to maybe just share the, um, just your final thoughts, be it tips, be it insights, just what might you leave us with before you um, transition 
off of our um, call for today? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is we're going to have to agree to disagree about becoming a CEO. <laughs> because at the, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. And um, that's a different, that's a different feeling. Trust me, I've been at every level of the organization. It doesn't define me. I'm still that kid from 31st and Ocean View. Um, I still go into the neighborhood. Um, I still do all the things I used to do at Texas Southern, mm -hmm. but I do understand when you have the ability to hire 850 full-time individuals um, and make those unsnap decisions, you know, that's a, that's a different set of responsibilities. So um, I will, I will definitely say that in terms of my parting words, uh, these are conversations that it shouldn't take black men dying in the street at the hands of police to have. We should be having these conversations, you know, 365 days a year. Um, you know, we, our lives matter too. Uh, we're humans as well. And, you know, I think in our industry, you know, in the Solomon House industry, we ought to be taking a leadership role in uh, having dialogue like this around the country. And I know you're doing a great job, Dr. White, uh, on that. And so continue to do that. And I'm here in the fight. And thank you for having me again on your show. I really appreciate it. Really, really proud of you. Really proud of what you've been able to put you and Andre and Gerald and uh, some of the other teams that um, really run a great, program for the last how long have we done this show now Has ten, it been years. 10 years mm -hmm. look at you look at you congratulations well, thank no, you well, well i appreciate it i'm one of those 800 so many employees that you allow to serve at neighborhood house and that you know the um the fact that we're able to have the show really stops at your desk too because you approve of us um continuing the programming and it's does not um leave me with regards to understanding and knowing that it is indeed with your support that uh, Leadership Matters is able to continue to bring programming to our nonprofit and public um, leaders, which is really our targeted audience. And so um, hats off to you and thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your support. <clears throat> and as much as you and Karen, um, your emphasis may be different, both, you know me, I'm a both and type of person. You both bring wonderful um, insight into the journey and things that can help our um, African-American children and emerging leaders in, in their elevation, but also in helping our allies figure out and understand our journey, our path, and what might be helpful to help us see a path forward. And Karen, we're gonna continue the conversation with regards to that path forward. But again, thank you so much, Rudy. Very much appreciate you. Rudy, was a pleasure. It was a pleasure, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So stay with us, we'll be right back with more on Leadership Matters, informing leaders, inspiring solutions.
business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. White. Her email address is drwhite at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to leadershipmatters at innovisions.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. And we're back with more on Leadership Matters. Karen Norman with us today from New York, the Chief Program Officer of Lutheran uh, Social Services. And I'm glad to have you uh, still with us in this conversation. Karen, so much has happened. And, um, you know, we know that the pandemic of racism is already, has always been here. And it's the revealing of it that's probably new, uh, revealing of it to others who haven't lived it in the, uh, in the way that black Americans have lived it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just probably blacks around the world have lived it. As you think about those who may be asking as allies, um, what do we do with regards to how can we support black leadership? How might we help dismantle racism? What are some of the thoughts that come to mind? Well, thoughts that jump right out at me are to have our allies listen more and explain less. I think that um, a part of the dynamic of whiteness and privilege allows for them to always want to be the prescriber and the explainer and the definer of every situation. There's like a sort of a quote unquote whiteness that is linked to whiteness that I think we have to really, if we're gonna have allies, really take a step back and look at. Um, Right now, we're at a period where we can't not know what we know. And I think as folks become aware of situations of injustice, they have a responsibility to educate themselves. And so then it doesn't become the full and total responsibility of your black friend or your black coworker to make you feel better, to 
allow your fears that perhaps you are racist, but seeking to be anti-racist. I think now is the time for us all to really educate ourselves around what being an anti-racist in a racist construct looks like. Um, I think for a lot of folks, just things that we're doing in terms of having um, more open dialogue is important. But I also think that I caution our allies to know that this has been exhausting because this has been centuries of experience for black people and people of color. And it's almost um, an affront to say, I didn't know. Or, and maybe they didn't, because I think that you're allowed a certain amount of um, hiding or nose in the sand if it's not your lived-in experience. I think about the, those statements of how the revolution will not be televised, but lo and behold, the revolution is being tele televised. Greatest thing that ever came out was a smartphone with a video, because now the atrocities that are happening are being filmed in real time and they're being shared across the world. And so because it's being shared across the globe, we can't hide in denial. We can't pretend that these things are not happening. And that's important. But I think that there's a level of humility that has to happen. Um, I think about things like in Australia or in other countries where they have been extreme racism. There's been extreme hostilities towards people of color. But there's also been this idea of apologizing and trying to figure out how you heal I'm forgetting the term, right? Reconciliation. So how do we get to reconciliation? It begins by people owning it and not saying things to us like, um, I didn't do it. My, I wasn't a slaveholder. Slavery's gone because we're still seeing the, after, the reverberating after effects of slavery. So I think that the reconciliation period is really important. And then really understanding that um, people of color, Black people have always led We've led in the midst of the civil rights movements. We've led in the midst of slavery. We've led in the midst of Jim Crow. We've led ourselves. And we've also had to help this country to define itself and to find its, its, better, uh, its better angels, its better nature. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's important as well. And our allies would do well to read and listen and learn and then figure out how to use whiteness and privilege to open up and give access, mm -hmm. but don't just give the access, lean back so that we can lean in and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, thank you, Karen, I appreciate that. When you think about our um, black leaders yeah. um, emerging and current um, during this time, what might be thoughts you'd share with them? Uh, so I'm thinking of, uh, I'm trying to remember his last name. He's the Senator Tim, Maybe you'll help me with it. He's the one who, uh, what is, I just sent him a tweet, a very nasty tweet the other day. He's the only Republican, um, black Republican senator, I think right now in the GOP. And he has really not helped to lead in the sense that he's minimized police brutality. He's minimized the ideas around the laws that have to be um, changed. And in order for us to have a different outcome and in order for us to eradicate this need to kill black men as though they were a bounty. So what I think is our leadership is important. Um, we shouldn't shortchange our communities. And this is not a time to pretend that things that are true are happening are not happening. There's no time for this. This is the time for us all to really keep our voices strong 
but also move to action and not just um, equivocate or settle for mm-hmm. very crum- settle for crumbs. Mm-hmm. I think that that's important for our leaders to learn. I think that the other day, whether you love him or not, Reverend Al Sharpton did an amazing thing when he did the uh, the eulogy for the George Floyd funeral, he made a point of saying that his last name was not even truly his last name. Because I don't think that people have really thought about that part of our history in this country. We have the last names of our slaveholders, not our last names that came from the country of origin, because you will hear us being told to go back to Africa, but people can't tell us where to go back to in Africa because these records were destroyed. They weren't kept because we were chattel. And I think that as leaders, we've got to keep that because I think we've taken it on. I'm really proud to be a Norman at the same time. That's not truly what probably my last name was, and I'll never know. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole lot of black history that has been deliberately erased in the United States. And there's a whole lot of atonement and there's a whole lot of reconciliation, I think, that needs to happen. And our leaders need to be strong in that idea. And they need not be afraid that black lives matter because yeah, every life matters. But if black lives don't matter, then we're not truly living the society and the ideal America that we're supposed to be living or we aspire to. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Karen, I'm uh, wondering with regards to um, just final thoughts. Mm-hmm. As we um, close out our conversation, what might be just a final thought you'd share? I would share that I'm really inspired and proud of all of the black women who are really helping to mold America differently, right? So when you think about black leaders um, who have emerged, black women who are leading cities, who are working on voter registration and getting those rights put back together, who are leading in the fight against the COVID pandemic, I salute you sisters. You give me inspiration. I don't live a life that's not optimistic. I think that's a waste of time. We have to constantly aspire to catching the sun. If we land on clouds and so be it. But I want black sisters out there, open up your mouth, open up your minds and keep doing this work because we have been the ones that have made the difference in elections. We have been the ones that made difference in our homes and in our communities. And there ain't no stopping us now. Wonderful. Karen, thank you so much. It's just been a Pleasure having the conversation with you. And Rudy, I know you've um, left us for um, the the show, but we want to thank you in your absence too. Both of you have been just wonderful guests. And I want to encourage everyone to please join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Leadership Matters, inspiring uh, solutions. But also I want to encourage us to just continue these conversations. So let's inform ourselves and in that process. Let's keep hope alive, as uh, Jess Jackson used to say. <laughs> and it's interesting with hope, because we say hope is a dream that awakens the soul, but with hope really comes what we need to, um, to really uh, bring about change. So again, thank you for joining us. Thank you again for tuning in. Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl White, Linda Schub, Gerald McFadden, Andre Howard, Tom Wall, and Rihanna Absar is broadcast live every Wednesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a wonderful week and make your leadership matter.